Now it is my pleasure to welcome back to our screen, our moderator and lead organizer of this series, Father Sam Conadera, Assistant Professor of History at St. Louis University and Jesuit of the USA Western Province. Father Sam, take it away. Hello, thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to introduce for today's talk. Um, I guess I'll call him a colleague, although that probably doesn't do him justice. Uh, Father David Vincent McConey of the Society of Jesus, who has his DPhil from Oxford. He's Associate Professor of Historical Theology, as well as the Director of the Catholic Studies Center at St. Louis University, and edits the journal Homiletic and Pastoral Review. Among his publications are The One Christ, St. Augustine's Theology of Deification, The Enemy Within, Augustine on Sin and Self-Sabotage, most recently, Augustine on Self-Harm, Narcissism, Atonement, and the Vulnerable Christ. Um, he's been busy, too. Um, more recently, he's coming out this year in 2021 with Christ Unfurled, the first 500 years of Jesus's life, and the ongoing incarnation, a spirituality of the mystical body. My working theories are that he either has a, a twin who helps him do all these things, or he's figured out by location. In any case, Father McConey is a former fellow of the Augustinian Institute at Villanova University. And today <clears throat> he will be giving his talk, Ambrose and Augustine on Christian Holiness. Father McConey, welcome. Thank you for that generous introduction. I think my only claim to fame was I gave Father Sam his first job. <laughs> Let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, consecrate these airways, let all that transmits through these websites and pages and social media be to your greater glory. Grant us the thirst and the humility to desire the holiness of your son, Jesus Christ, emulated in your saints. Cardinal George, Ambrose, and Augustine, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you. Uh, I shall simply read this talk. It's uh, 20 pages, so maybe a half hour, and then we'll have 20 minutes or so for uh, Q&A or disagreement, or however the audience wishes to participate. The name of the talk this uh, afternoon is Ambrose and Augustine on Christian Holiness in honor of the Bollandist work in keeping so many great saints alive for the modern reader. The church fathers and medieval doctors and mystics theologized for no other reason than the pursuit of Christian holiness, understood as total conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. Before academic careerism and before novelty became necessary for a paid professor's security of tenure and the recognition of the intellectual elite, the first generations of theologians spent their mental energies pastorally, trying to save souls and working to unite and extend Christ's life in and through his church. So if you didn't catch that, I'm very suspicious of modern day theologians. As a vagarious of Pontus knew as early as the fourth century, quote, to be a theologian is to pray, and to pray is to be a theologian. That said, the mature craft of theology today does insist upon particular methodologies and techniques, but divorced from the ecclesial quest for Jesus Christ as its personal purpose and living goal, the task of theology separates itself from its only real object of study, God himself. The church fathers stand as a rebuke of modern theology, where talking about God too often replaces talking to God. In fact, I would add, much of today's theology is not even talking about God and God's ways, 
but our own limited human experiences and the particular race, gender, or societal ills, thus confusing sociology with theology. Given that this is a talk intended for the great work of Lumen Christi, allow me to point you to the March 1992 essay in First Things, written by our own father, Paul Mankowski of Happy Memory, where he canvassed the annual titles of the American Academy of Religion that year. Among the supposedly theological papers being delivered, we have, quote, HIV antibody testing as an exercise of sociopolitical power, another paper entitled War, Battering, and Sports, the Gulf Between American Men and the Other, and among my personal favorites, an exploration of quilt design as a reasoning process. While such studies are today commonplace, ranging from the humorous yet innocent enough quilting to the scatological and crudely offensive, they are now the very stuff with which most academic conferences and theological societies consider themselves. However, rightly understood, the task of theology is to use human thoughts and words to unveil evermore the infinite mystery of God's divine personhood and God's unmatched love in creating and redeeming this world and those made in his own image and likeness. The Catholic Church is unique in this conversation and that our interlocutors go back 2000 years. We see in the nascent years of the church's growth, figures whose lives and whose theological works stand out still today precisely because they're foundational in that timeless human search for wholeness. Thinkers like Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Origen, the Cappadocian Fathers, as well as Jerome and our two authors today, Ambrose Augustine, are still being read, not because they made a name for themselves with some avant-garde article or some novel challenge to the canon. They are read today because they sought to use their words and their work to unite the perfect power of Jesus Christ with the mercurial and marred hearts of men and women. They sought holiness, and they knew that holiness had a name and a home, Jesus Christ and his church, where all men and women are called to come and find their ultimate worth. Therefore, this afternoon, let us look at these two early pillars of the Western way of theologizing, Ambrose of Milan and Augustine of Hippo. While the former is known mainly as the influencer of the latter, Ambrose has his own helpful theology of holiness, which proves to be a more pneumatic and more practical than Augustine's, and that he stresses the Holy Spirit's ability to transform our daily human actions as we grow more and more in assimilating the Son of God's presence. Augustine's theology of holiness is ostensibly less practical and probably more personal, a state of being in which we realize deeply in the now quieted heart that we are God's beloved children empowered to live superhuman lives. Neither of these church fathers has a separate treatise anywhere on holiness, Neither, in fact, set out to focus on the nature of human sanctification, but both are more than interested in explaining to their various publics how it is one life best achieved through union with Christ. So let us begin with Ambrose, who himself admits his Episcopal vocation, quote, was snatched from the tribunals, a man who left an illustrious military and political career to serve the Catholics of Milan born in Trier, sometime between 334 and 340, dating is, is shoddy here. Ambrose's family was part of the Gens Aurelia, an ancient and aristocratic Roman family whose pedigree could boast both powerful Roman statesmen as well as humble Christian virgins and martyrs, Ambrose's relative Sotheris being publicly slain during the persecution of Diocletian in 303. 
His father dies early, so Ambrose's mother took him and his two siblings to Rome to be with family there. And in 353, his sister Marcelina was veiled as a consecrated virgin by Pope Liberius in the Basilica of St. Peter's. By all accounts, Ambrose trained as a lawyer and by 368 had been named to the prefecture of Sermimium and by 370 was named Council of Liguria and Emilia with his imperial residence at Milan. So we're talking about someone who's worked his way up the Roman ladder quite successfully and swiftly. This now is where his biography is best known. With tensions rising between the Catholics and the Arians at the heart of the Roman Empire, Milan, the death of the Arian Bishop Auxentius in 374, riots broke out, and each side was jockeying for their people to hold the next Episcopal chair. As Consularis, Ambrose was called in one afternoon to squelch some rather violent clashes, and given his ability to restore the peace efficiently and without military might, both sides agreed that he, this unbaptized military man, would make a fitting leader, both sides hoping then they could sway him to their side. And within the time span of one week, Ambrose had been baptized, had received all the necessary sacraments to be ordained priest, and then was consecrated bishop on December 7th, 374. He did in one week what it takes Jesuits about 18 years to do. Ambrose's theology of holiness begins where the new Christian life begins as well, at the baptismal font. In Bishop Ambrose's De Sacramentis, we receive six mystagogical homilies treating the sacraments of baptism, Holy Eucharist, and confirmation. These sermons were most likely preached with the neophytes in mind given throughout the year 390 after Easter. Following St. Paul, Ambrose sees how baptism is an imitative continuation of Christ's death to this world. As he was crucified to the fallen world, we too are empowered to rise above our sinful inclinations by entering that holy water three times in imitation of the Lord's three days of death. Quote, see where you are baptized. See where baptism comes from. If not from the cross of Christ, then from his death. There is the whole mystery. He died for you, and in him you are redeemed. In him you are saved. Yet this premier sacrament of Christian initiation is not emulation of the Son only. The Father claims us as his adopted children by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell within each of the baptized soul. Ambrose therefore goes on to delineate how each of the three divine persons acts. Quote, recall that you have each received a spiritual seal. You've received the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You've received a spirit of right judgment and courage, of knowledge and reverence. You've received the spirit of holy fear in God's presence. So guard what you have received. God the Father has marked you with his sign. Christ the Lord has confirmed you and placed his pledge upon you. And the spirit now dwells deeply within your hearts. The spiritualization of the church's sacraments, the stressing of the Holy Spirit uniting us to the Father through the Son, should not lead us to think that this act somehow forces Ambrose to downplay the role of the body. As scholars have shown, Ambrose was well immersed in the philosophical works of the Neoplatonists while, while shepherding Milan. He either headed up or was deeply involved in a Milanese circle of folks who would gather to read most likely the works of Plotinus, the Enneads. It's important to remember that unlike the original inspired Plato, Neoplatonism, 
did not find matter the cosmic problem. The problem is not our bodies. The problem is the warring separation caused by diversity. The philosophy from which Ambrose theologized held that the one, you could say God, was present throughout this world. And it was not the body which disrupted harmony, but separation and an unwillingness to be united into one. That's why the spirit is so important for Ambrose. The Holy Spirit is the one who unifies. You can hear that today, right, in the doxology, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Ambrose can thus instruct us. Here's another quote. The baptized man is now rightly called a king, for he makes his own body an obedient subject, and by governing himself with suitable rigor, refuses to let his passions breed rebellion in his soul. For now he can exercise a kind of royal power over himself. And because he knows how to rule his own person as king, he does sit as his own judge as well. He will not let himself be imprisoned by sin or thrown headlong into wickedness. When we're baptized, we're baptized into the kingship of Christ, meaning that we do become our own sovereigns, no longer needing to be led by external uh, impulses or sensual goods. St. Ambrose says of the two conversions in the church, quote, there are water and tears the water of baptism, and the tears of repentance. But while the practice of daily and personal confession would not become standard and Christian on the continent until the arrival of the Irish monks in the 6th and 7th centuries, there were occasions for bishops of the early church to hear and absolve the sins of those who came to them, usually with the heaviest of burdens. This was done most often during the season of Lent. And in De Sacramentis 5, Ambrose wrote this, Oh man, you do not dare to raise your face to heaven. You lowered your eyes to the earth, but suddenly you receive the grace of Christ and all your sins can be forgiven. From being a wicked servant, you have now become a good son. So raise your eyes back to the father who begot you through baptism, to that father who redeemed you through his son and gave you the words, our father. But when you do this, do not claim any privilege of your own. He is a father in a special way only of Jesus Christ, but he is through grace the common father of us all. And while he's begotten only Christ, he has created you. Then also say by this grace, our father, that you may continue to become his son. The holiness that comes from the forgiveness of sins is shared with those humble enough to reveal their sinful souls, but that holiness is still Christ's. At the heart of Ambrose's baptismal theology is the reality of divine adoption, linked here to the saving waters of the font as the place where one is enabled to pray, Our Father. These two movements are related, although they may not be realized for years in the case of an infant, because the goal of baptism is not simply the forgiveness of sins. It's ultimately incorporation of a mortal into the eternal family of the Father. It is ultimately the action of Christ and the Holy Spirit who adopts us in order to be welcomed into the presence of the Father. And think of how any adoption works. It's total gift. There's nothing that adopted child has done or merited to become a member of that family. They are members of that family. We are Christians because we have a God Father who loves us and a Mother Mary who, who intercedes and prays for us. It's all gift, all grace. And Ambrose knew that well. As any family must not only be started, it must be fed along the way. The Eucharist, naturally enough, proves essential in understanding Ambrose's exhortations to Christian holiness. First, 
he sees our reception of Holy Communion as a cleansing, a communing with the very sacrifice which alone washes away human infidelity. The Eucharist is no doubt a continuation of Calvary for, Augusta, for Ambrose, extending the fruits of that sacrifice to those who were unable to live in first century Jerusalem. Quote, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord. And when we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim also the forgiveness of our sins. If as often as his blood is poured out, it is poured out for the forgiveness of my sins. So I should always want to receive it, that it may always forgive my sins because I always sin. And so I should always be given a remedy. De Sacramentus 4. Because we are always in need of constant regeneration for Ambrose. He encourages us to receive the Eucharist as often as possible, optimally even daily. When St. Ambrose, when we can unite, sorry, even daily, when we can unite our distended fallen temporal order to the eternity of God. It is here in the host that heaven and earth are united, where time ceases and mortals are united to the eternal nature and actions of the Son. Quote, since it refers above all to his word and to the body of his Son, this today is not only that of our mortal time, but it is the today of God. If you receive the bread each day, each day is today for you. If Christ is yours today, he rises for you every day. How can this be? Because today you are my son, because today I have begotten you. Therefore, today is when Christ rises in you. So you see how Ambrose's bishop is trying to unite the liturgy with the movement of our own souls, getting us to understand that those mysteries of Christ's saving work also are replicated and continued in us if we allow them to. The creed. Ambrose took much care to comment on the church's creedal tradition. Dedicating five books to the emperor Gratian, for example, who once asked him for an explanation of homo usios, that term of, of Council of Nicaea against the Arians, who were set on dividing his empire. From our bishop's hand, there's the explanatio symboli given to the catechumens, as well as the expositio fidei for the more advanced. So these are two commentaries on the creed, explaining the central truths of the Christian faith. Quote, this creed is the spiritual seal, Ambrose says. This creed is the spiritual seal, our heart's meditation, and an ever-present guardian. It is unquestionably the treasure of our souls. Here at the Explanatio Symboli 7, Ambrose commits himself to the view that the Apostles' Creed, as we know it today, is the most faithful summary of Christ's own beliefs. And he even supplements such authority by writing that this symbol, this faith, this creed, is, quote, the creed of the Roman Church, the see of Peter, the first of all the Apostles, to which he brought us this common faith. So Ambrose had the sense that Peter was the one who edited, who, who authored ultimately the Apostles' Creed. This Petrine authority is for Ambrose the key to safeguarding the undiluted Catholic faith. It is what Catholics have that Arians do not, an unbroken line of teaching that alone can empower true holiness. It is therefore essential to see that such holiness is not for Ambrose the amassing of virtue or the keeping of the law or some set of rules. It is allowing Christ through the Holy Spirit to take up his life in our souls, achieved as we've seen through surrendering to the divine persons through the church's sacraments and thereby enabling us to profess the faith rightly in the creed so as to understand how it is we are to embrace this new life granted to us by the Holy Spirit. 
This mutual end dwelling, Christ in us, we in Christ, allows us to experience the heavenly kingdom even now. Quote, for life is to be with Christ, and where Christ is, there is life, and there is the kingdom of God. In his commentary on Genesis 6 and the story of Noah, Ambrose lays out the soteriological realities of this exchange between God's taking on our humanity so we could partake of his divinity. Quote, God, however, since he is everlasting, transfers the inheritance of his divine substance to just people, and he himself, while being in need of nothing, gives what is without any cost to himself of giving. The partakers of his goods do not weigh him down, but God enjoys his goods more as we use them. Isn't that nice? That God enjoys himself more as we let him feed us and take care of us. Accordingly, the Lord Jesus became poor, although he was rich, so that we might be enriched by the poverty of him who fulfilled each covenant with his own blood, so that he might make us co-heirs of his life and heirs of his death, by whom we have both fellowship in this life and advantage of his death in the next. This is one of the few places I know of in patristic literature where the great exchange language, Christ's humanity for our divinity, is translated into a matter of the alms deeds. That is, our holiness is affected by God's humanity. That's standard. He became human so we could become godly. And in so doing, we're called to imitate his ontological poverty for our material poverty by sharing what we have with others. In serving others, our fellowship, consortium is the Latin Ambrose uses here, with Christ is made real through our merciful giving toward others. This language of the Son's exchange is where we must find any Ambrosian images of holiness. It is here in and through Christ's sacred flesh that our flesh becomes spiritualized. Our souls become sealed with the Holy Spirit. Reflecting on why the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the creed, Ambrose writes, quote, so that while he grants himself as a partaker of our weakness in the flesh, he makes us partakers of the divine nature in his power. But in neither one nor the other have we any natural fellowship with the celestial generation of Christ nor is there any subjection of divinity in Christ. But as the apostle has said that in him through that flesh, which is the pledge of our salvation, we now sit in the heavens, even though we don't really sit there. So also is he said to be subject in us through the assumption of our nature. So Ambrose here is extending these biblical metaphors. Of course, Christ isn't truly our servant. He is God, but he serves us as such. Or again, from his work on the incarnation. Therefore, he received from us what he offered as his own for us, sacrifice. He received from us mortality so that he could offer for us that we might be redeemed from what was not our own. And what was not our own, he granted to us from his own divine bounty. So we gave God death. He gave us life. Thus, he offered himself according to our nature that he might accomplish a work beyond our nature. And many things you will find in him, both according to nature and beyond nature, right? He's both God and man. One significant place Ambrose proves different than Augustine is in his liberal use of 2 Peter 1.4, that we've been made partakers of the divine nature. This is a pivotal passage in the history of Christian spirituality, and Ambrose draws from it many wonderful things. What is striking is that just one generation later, this verse will have been co-opted by the Pelagians and used to explain how we humans can become divine simply by willing it. Augustine only cites 2 Peter 1.4 when reporting on the deliberations of the anti-Pelagian synods of the early 5th century, but he never utilizes it in any significant theological way. 
Ambrose, on the other hand, most often uses this image of partaking in God's own life when he reflects on the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian economy. If the Son's flesh is our portal through which we come to the Father, the Spirit serves as a sort of elevating force, raising us up past our own limited nature. It is the Spirit that we are thus elevated to the divine life. Quote, through the Holy Spirit, we have been made worthy to be in the image and likeness of God, and through him it occurs, as Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature. Remember, when Ambrose was shepherding his flock, it was between the two first councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, when the consubstantiality of the Holy Spirit, co-equally one with the Father and the Son, is still being questioned. Ambrose's theology of holiness is inextricably linked with the action of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the saints. And the implicit argument behind this transformation is that if the Spirit can make us divine through grace, and he himself is not in need of this elevation, is he not divine per se? Quote, so then the Holy Spirit is the river and the abundant river, which according to the Hebrews flowed from Jesus into the land, Ambrose writes. This is the great river, the Holy Spirit flowing always and never failing. And not only a river, but also one of copious streaming and overflowing greatness, as David says, the stream of the river makes glad the city of God. Imagine this, the Holy Spirit being the river, which, which, which vivifies this world. It's a provocative suggestion that the city of God in Augustine's mentor's mind is not only enlivened, but even deified by the Son's sending of the Holy Spirit. And now the world in which we live is the vehicle where and through God's children realize their destiny in becoming saints. Let us now transition into Augustine's thoughts here. The story of Augustine's life is certainly better known because better documented than that of his first Christian mentor. Born in November of 354 in North Africa, Augustine succeeded easily at school and went on to a promising career as an instructor of rhetoric, ultimately landing a post in Milan, taking the lead as the emperor's propaganda maker. Here in the seat of the empire's capital, all of his philosophical pursuits, along with his theological curiosities, those questions he left unanswered as he left North Africa and dabbled in other religious creeds like the Manichaeans, came to a particular fulfillment in the providential encounter with Milan's Bishop Ambrose. In particular, Augustine's arrival in 384 providentially coincided with Ambrose's preaching on Genesis a text that the literal-minded Augustine found particularly thorny. Here, the great orator was instructed in the nature of myth, allegory, typology, and all the varied levels and types of meaning found throughout the Christian canon. By 386, late August, Augustine resigns his imperial role in the late summer to take up residence for eight months at a villa outside Milan to prepare for baptism. Here, he began his philosophical dialogues. He learned how to pray with the Psalms, and he discerned the next chapter in his life. And on the Easter vigil of 387, he and his son Adeodatus approached the holy font and were baptized by Ambrose, and then eventually set back to Africa to return where Augustine hoped he could start an intellectual monastic community, where he and some like-minded brothers could, as he wrote his friend Nebridius, deificare in ozio, to become godly in leisure. Unlike Ambrose, Augustine universalizes the desire for Christian holiness with the very beginnings of humanity, apologetically arguing that Jesus is not just for a select few, but for every human soul, because every human soul is created for nothing other 
than its fullness in Christ. And what I mean different than Ambrose, Augustine draws from that innate desire for, for rest, right? Our hearts are restless in a way that Ambrose doesn't, isn't able to do. Augustine says we have an innate yearning to become like Christ. The way a reflection in a mirror longs to mimic the one in the mirror. Fabricating an imaginary dialogue between reason and himself, Augustine envisions reason asking, does it not seem to you that your image in a mirror wants in a way to be like you and remains false because it is not? And Augustine says that certainly seems so. Then reason's response, do not all pictures and replicas of that kind and all artists work of that type strive to be that in whose likeness they're made? Augustine says, I'm completely convinced they do. Augustine uses this inherent desire for divinity to his apologetic advantage, arguing that this is the way Christians can evangelize and help other people see that what they really are after is Jesus Christ. What the restless heart will alone find satisfying is truth, joy, and justice. And one day we shall all find out that these are synonyms for Christ. This is why the Augustinian tradition the formation of desires is so important in our search for holiness. What we desire determines our destinies. Our loves determine our lives. Love the world, Augustine asks, <laughs> you will become world. Love God, what shall I say? Yes, you will become God. This reveals an important psychological point. Augustine is not so worried that someone might not know Christ, but that one might not even love what is lovable. And I think this is why the iniquity of the mystery of sin looms so heavily in his writings. Through habit and an ability to find self-harm somehow pleasing, we fallen sots can grow comfortable with what is actually uncomfortable, come to find solace in that which is actually destructive. Commenting on John 6 and Jesus's words on being drawn to the Father, Augustine writes, every one of us is drawn by our pleasures, not by necessity, but by pleasure not by obligation, but by that in which we delight. So how much more strongly should we say that those whose delight is the truth, whose delight is in happiness, whose delight is in justice, whose delight is eternal life, are drawn to Christ? Because each of those is Christ. Now listen to this. Give me a lover, and he will know by experience what I'm saying here. Give me one of strong desires. Give me someone who is hungry. Give me someone traveling thirsty through this wilderness and panting for the fountain of life, and he'll know what I'm saying. The holy pilgrim is the one who might not know the destination, but is doing everything he or she can to stay on the right path step by step. A lover is the only one humble enough to reach out and cry for fulfillment. The hungry admit their need and the tired finally admit rest. This is where Augustine's search for holiness starts, the unquiet of the fallen human soul. Now, lest we think he will then take us through a cataloging of our sinfulness, the exact opposite happens. Augustine points us to ourselves only by pointing us to Christ, who is for him the everyman, the new Adam. When we see Christ's face, we finally understand who we too are called to be. Sermon 133, section 8. Now, however, I wonder if we shouldn't have a look at ourselves, if we shouldn't think about his body, because we is also he. He is also us. Quia et nos ipse est. He is also us. After all, if we weren't him, this wouldn't be true. When you did it for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And if we weren't him, this wouldn't be true. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So we too are him because we are his organs. We are his body. 
he is our head because the whole Christ is both head and body. The concept of the whole Christ, totus Christus, sums up Augustine's ecclesiology. Such a concept evidences yet another image of holiness, evidencing how the incarnation unites all human persons into Christ, quote, uniting us into one body with himself and making us his members so that in him we too are Christ. From this, Augustine continues, it is obvious that we are the body of Christ on earth, for we have all been anointed. In him, right, chrismated Christ, in him all of us belong to Christ. But we are Christ too, because in some sense the whole Christ is head and body. It's commentary on Psalm 26. As such, there can be no holiness apart from the incorporation of Christian into Christ. Just as there can be no complete Christ, here's the paradox, without this holiness, without his body. Augustine stresses how it is the Lord's free decision to include created persons into his own understanding of self. The great Augustinian scholar, Tarsisius van Babel, has shown how Augustine saw more than a simile or a mere comparison in Paul's mystical body language. In Augustine's use of Pauline mystical body imagery, Van Bavel sees an illustration of how strong the union between Christ and Christian actually is. This is Van Bavel's, uh, Van Bavel's um, essay, Christus Totus. Since the moment Jesus left this world, he needs our hands to reach out to the destitute. He needs our eyes to see the needs of the world. He needs our ears to listen to the misery of others. He needs our feet to go to the persons to whom nobody else goes. Salvation can never be extra mundane, for Christians have to build up the very beginning of the reign of God in this world. Unquote. While Augustine stresses our path to holiness as one of union with Christ, that union is always the prerogative and initiation of God himself. In descending into the human condition, the incarnate son is not changed, but he does eternally alter all that he takes to himself. And this is an exchange which immortalizes the mortal as it mortalizes the immortal. Augustine, it was not enough for God to promise us divinity in himself unless he also took on our infirmity. And in so doing, he says, do you want to know how much I love you? How certain you ought to be that I'm going to give you my divine reality? I took to myself your mortal reality. We mustn't find it incredible, brothers and sisters that human beings become gods. That is, those who were human beings can become gods. Or again, Sermon 265, you didn't have anything to live by and Christ didn't have anything to die with. So what a marvelous exchange. Live by what is his because he died with what is yours. But how does one come to this state? While Ambrose was more ecclesially minded and sacramentally focused, Augustine proves to be a bit more, I would say, personal and mystical, and that he tends, of course, while never ignoring the church and her sacraments, to focus more on the need of internal conversion and purification. And twice in his corpus, he offers a sort of ladder or, or checklist by which one can um, gauge one's holiness. The earliest comes at De Vera Religione, um, section 26. This is the first work Augustine wrote as a priest. He says, the first step of holiness is to know the tradition of the church, wherein we receive good examples, the lives of the saints. So the Bolandus is where we all begin our, our quest for holiness. But we first have to know what it is we're getting into, very common sense. The second step is intellectual. And he explains that by forgetting human things and ignoring our tendency to focus on base words and ideas 
and strive for things divine, very Pauline, right? Think of the things that are above. The third step, quite amazing. It's an internal espousal when the mind and the will are so one that separating is no longer a possibility. Acrasia, right? That weakness of will, no longer. Quote, it is the marrying and rejoicing inwardly of a conjugal modesty, so there is no longer a question anymore of not living an upright life, right? The will and the mind of this, this perfect couple. Fourthly, it is a love affair becoming more systematic and firm as the perfect man, the perfect person grows in awareness and habit. So it's not enough just to have that initial union. It has to be habitualized over time. Fourthly, fifthly, is uh, when one finds oneself living well, but now can look around and admit the riches and joys of this world, neither spurning them nor embracing them, but appreciating the created order for what it is. So here's a kind of a world-friendly spirituality. You are immersed in all this good, and it's not always for you. It's a discernment step. Sixthly, we begin to forget time and live as eternal creatures. Maybe we who are getting older do that automatically. But we start to realize that this life is a drop in the bucket. And then seventh, of course, eternal rest. The just um, enjoy the end of, he says, how does he put it? Just as the end of the natural man is bodily death, the end of the holy person is spiritual joy. Augustine loved these sorts of, of numbering. Huh? He loved to play with numbers. It's no surprise then that many years later, these steps mature into a new schema, but with more or less the same demand for the spiritualization of those intent on holiness. Here, the plan is laid out with the question of how we can rightly read the Bible. So this is De Doctrina Christiana. This was started in 397 and not finished till 426. It's Augustine's handbook on hermeneutics and how to preach properly. Here we learn first that no one can rightly approach the word of God unless he or she is tamed intellectually. Their pride subdued by a proper fear of the Lord, Timor Domini, the beginning of knowledge. Second, this fear is matured into piety, into an awe, into a reverence. Um, this is where the path of Christian holiness begins, the slow kind of ponderance and appreciation by seeking out, here's those saints again, seeking out counsel of those who've gone before us. The third step is described then as true knowledge. So you have fear, you have piety or duty, and then true knowledge, loving God for who he is and loving all other things to get to God. Here's where Augustine introduces that distinction, that famous distinction between uti and frui. That God alone is to be fruity, to be enjoyed. All other things must be uti, must be utilized to get to God. Fourthly, in a very platonic admittance, fortitude is needed, as there is no way we can persevere in such other-centeredness if we do not know that despite any adversity, God will give us the grace to make the journey. So the fourth step is a kind of conviction that everything that's being set up now will perdure. The fifth step on this ladder is the merciful heart the realization of our own need for grace. What is the first tenet of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Augustine points out. Poor in spirit. I don't think God cares how much money we have. I think he cares that we realize everything is given. That's true poverty, realizing everything has been given to us. Be kind, be patient, Augustine says, by loving and recognizing more and more how kind and patient your loving God has been to you. So is this admittance of our, our sense of, of belovedness and gift pouring out to others. The sixth step 
is when we begin to see with the very eyes of God, deified eyes, as Augustine writes in the city of God about this time. Here we begin to see through the eyes of the spirit and to love with the heart of the son. While finally the seventh step brings us into total union of minds and wills and the fullness of heaven begins to take root in our souls even now. Last page, okay. This is a conformity to Christ that separates Christians from both the world as well as our old selves. One aspect of this journey, Augustine stresses, that Ambrose does not usually do, is our need for littleness in approaching the God-man. Augustine likes this imagery of smallness, of becoming little, because the once proud politico needs to be reminded that we are made holy, not through strength, but through weakness, not by forcing ourselves, but by surrendering our lives. Just as Jesus Christ, Augustine preaches, quote, Sermon 380, just as Jesus Christ was made so small that he could be born of a woman, but he was not separated from the Father ever. O oh, man, on whose account God became man, you ought to consider yourself to be something great, yes. But first, come down low in order that you may go up high rightly. Because God, too, came down low when he became a man. Stick close to your cure, imitate your master, and acknowledge your Lord. Embrace that, brother, so you can understand your God. That's what he is, the one so great and so small. Here, Augustine's theology of holiness begins and ends. It is in the sons calibrating his perfection to our imperfection that we can finally realize our ultimate call to become one with God by imitating the crucified one. In so doing, we are incorporated, you hear the word corpus there, incorporated into his body as his body and realize here that all is grace, all is gift. And our holiness is nothing other than Christ alive in the now sanctified because crucified soul. It is in our allowing ourselves to be embraced by our brother that we realize our status as sons and daughters. And this is the ultimate definition of holiness for the great Bishop of Hippo, who encourages us to rejoice and give thanks, he says, for we have been made not Christians, but we have been made Christ. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Father McConey, for a great talk. Um, so far, most of our questions from the audience revolve around getting an encore. They want to know where they can view the, uh, listen to the talk. Again, of course, it will be posted on YouTube and be available on the Lumen Christi website. But we do have a, a couple of other questions pertaining to the content of your talk. Um, well, one will actually begin with an observation. Someone mentions, one of our listeners mentions that Second Peter uh, 1 4 uh, was put into the Christmas Day mass collect and then used at the commingling of the chalice. So it does, you mentioned that connection to the liturgy. There does seem to be some, some uh, entrance of this idea. That's but, a great point. Yeah, as far as questions go. One of our listeners wants to know, what are the sources for Ambrose's life, his biography? Who gives us that information? Well, Paulinus wrote a biography that uh, is maybe more hagiographical and historical. Um, and we also have in the traditional kind of church histories, uh, the life of Ambrose. But often it begins with uh, his entry into Milan. I think the best things that we can do is what scholars have done in and call the letters and the sermons in which he gives autobiographical references. Okay. Excellent. Um, 
And another question is, someone asks about the, the same listener asks about the use of the allegorical approach to scripture that, that Augustine found so compelling. Um, is this found all throughout uh, Ambrose's work or are there particular places where you see it more prominently? Well, as far as Augustine's concerned, we see it in the Hexameron when Ambrose is preaching on Genesis, because when, when Augustine arrived in Milan, he's still very much a Latin reader, and he's looking for meaning, he's looking for truth. He's not understanding the, the poetic, allegorical, typological nature of scripture. He's not understanding this as something more than what the words say. As Chesterton says, the, the Bible isn't true in everything it says, it's true in everything it means. And Augustine admits, when I got to Milan, thinking that I was made in God's image and likeness, I thought God had uh, hair. I thought God had nostrils. And he says, this just can't be. And all of a sudden, Ambrose is explaining Genesis 1, 26, 27, being made in God's image and likeness as having reason, of having um, understanding. And Augustine says, ah, there's more here than I realized. So that's the introduction. And you can see the allegorical method throughout Ambrose's homilies, which Augustine eventually uh, masters. So... Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, also one of our questions about the availability of the works of Ambrose online. Are there major collections of his work, either in English or in Latin? There are, as most of us probably go to, that New Advent, um, the, the Schaff collection, uh, the 19th century. But thank God for Catholic University of America Press. They've been doing more and more of his biblical studies Ambrose has a large collection of commentaries on Old Testament books, and those are now being translated into new English idiom. So they're, they're, they're great. Um, but a lot of that stuff is still available on New Advent Excellent. In, the, in the public domain. And now at the outset of your talk or in the kind of the blurb for it, you said there was not, neither of these authors defined holiness per se, but if you had to reduce it to uh, an essential sentence or two about each one of them. What, what would be the key idea of what holiness is for, for each? Well, if academics could do something in a, in a blurb, we wouldn't need to drone on for 40 minutes. So <laughs> no, that's a great question. And I should have done that to the justice of our, our listeners. For Ambrose, I would say holiness is linked to the spirit and it's manifested in a very practical way. The term sanctitas appears most often in his work on virgins. So for Ambrose, your holiness is going to be manifested in your way of life. It's going to be something external, discernible, notable. And it's going to be primarily, if he were asked, I think, linked to the role of the Holy Spirit. For Augustine, holiness is a, an appropriation of the son's filiality before the father. And it's not always going to be manifested externally. It's going to be more a state of being in which you have become this adopted uh, son or daughter of the father. Now, he will expect it to be translated into actions in the right way of life, of course, but that's, he doesn't define it that way. And this goes, I think, with Augustine's own experience. And it also goes with his understanding of church, that there are people who are in the church doing pious actions that will not get to heaven. And there are people outside the church living just lives who will be in heaven. So he's a little more, I think, because of the Donatist controversy, which Ambrose didn't have to wrestle with as much, uh, leery of equating uh, holiness with externals. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yeah. then you'd say, is, is Augustine fairly original in this regard, or do you think he's drawing on somebody else in the tradition who went before him? Well, we, yeah, Augustine scholars always wonder from whom is he drawing? We know he, we know he knew Ambrose. Uh, we don't know what he read of Ambrose, of course. We know he knew Irenaeus. We knew that he um, knew some of the Eastern fathers. 
but I would say this is fairly unique. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, oh yes, this is an interesting one. Um, our author writes, does pride play, our viewer writes, does pride play a different role in Ambrose and Augustine concerning the search for holiness? Do they think about pride in more or less the same terms or differently? That's a great question. Augustine, I mean, for Ambrose, yes, pride is, of course. I mean, for any Christian author, pride is the beginning. Where Ambrose does not develop it as richly as Augustine is Augustine's understanding of pride as, as self-centeredness, as concupiscence. This notion that pride makes it all about me. And that is uh, a more explicit, I think, understanding of pride. But for both, of course, it is the ultimate rejection of God, um, thinking one is a self-made person. But for Augustine, this, this self-madeness is, I think, manifested in terms of, well, how do little children disappear, right? They do this. We're so self-centered. We figure if I can't see you, you can't see me. And that really is Augustine's um, working definition of concupiscence or of pride, which Ambrose, I don't think would disagree with, but I don't know anywhere where it's developed at all. Yeah. And I uh, was going to ask you a follow-up question on terminology. Is sanctitas the term, you mentioned that term comes up in De Virginibus a lot. Is it yeah. a prominent term throughout their writings or do they have synonyms that, because I remember in your work on deification, you talk about Augustine doesn't always, doesn't use that term necessarily, but he use other expressions that mean the same thing. Is the yeah, same? I, is, well, is I mean, the, the, think about the words uh, virtue and, and, and purity and um, those kinds of words. I mean, they're there too. The word holiness, of course, is related to our English word wholeness, right? Just the way sanctitas is related to the word sanus. It means to be of one mind, kind of knowing who you are. And so the synonyms that you would have to draw from in the Latin would be things like, like virtue and, um, yeah, purity, um, castitatem. Um, that maybe that's why it appears so often in the work on the virgins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, if I can interrupt, one yeah. of the great etymologies is the word for the devil. Balling is to throw like symbol or hyperbole. Um, dia is the prefix to scatter. So diabolical literally means to toss apart, to scatter, to divide. And this is exactly what sanctitas is against this notion of being sane, of being of one mind. Um, and I think in one way, neither Augustine or Ambrose, well, no, maybe Augustine more. The ultimate Christian problem, I think, for Augustine isn't so much sin. I mean, read the Gospels. Christ is never harsh with sinners. I think the ultimate Christian problem is double-mindedness, what James warns against, wanting to be saints on our terms, wanting to be Christ on our terms. Uh, I think that sin is easy to deal with, but the divided will is much harder. Yeah. And then some one of our listeners, uh, viewers, recalls a recent Lumen Christi talk on relics and um, a personal pilgrimage to Ambrose's crypt in Milan. Do, does uh, Augustine have a comparable shrine or place where we can go visit his remains? Oh, well, Augustine had a great regard for relics, and he has many homilies exhorting uh, pilgrimage to places of, of, of um, relics. But yeah, his bones were moved from North Africa in the 15th century when the Muslims came through and they were moved to Pavia up in outside Milan. And you can go and visit those today. You should be warned the parish is a Dominican parish, but that's okay. Does he have any remains in Rome, to your knowledge? 
or maybe little bits, but of course, Monica is at uh, Santa Monica off Piazza Navona. And uh, what year was it? I mean, if you're not Catholic, this stuff sounds crazy. John Paul II, St. John Paul II had Augustine's bones brought to Rome so he could rest with Monica during that year. Um, he dies in 430. She is in 387, 388. So maybe it was 1988, the anniversary of her death. Yeah. Okay. So. Excellent. Um, we've got, that's pretty much all our, our questions have been answered either directly or indirectly up to this point. Uh, do you have any um, final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Uh, again, once again, thank you for such a such a wonderful talk. Well, I'm grateful. I see a comment here uh, by Albert Cazell for Delay's, Delahaye's Sanctus article, which I don't oh, know. Yes. So I will check that out. I can always use more reading on holiness. Um, but And I see Dr. Ogle present. So thank you. I, yeah. I don't Excellent. have anything else. Well, well once again, we, we uh, thank you, Father McConey. We thank all the hard work of people who, who do this kind of careful work into the lives of the saints, to you, to other scholars, to the Bollandist Society. And um, I think we can uh, turn it over now. Um, oh, wait. Uh, we've got one. Do we have time for one last? Um, it has to do with the Hebrew and the Greek terms for holiness, kuds and uh, ha hagios. Since holiness is an attribute of God, would you say there is an easier way to think of holiness for the common person? I have tried to define holiness to help others with a call to holiness called for Vatican II. Is there a way you could offer the lay person to become holy specifically? Well, this might surprise you, but think of Ignatius of Loyola. The first line of the spiritual exercises is the human person is created to praise, reverence, and serve God and thereby save your soul. So I think holiness in the most common attractive idiom is to know that you have been called to become a saint. And therefore, every decision, every activity, every pursuit, every meal, every, every website needs to be ordered toward that end. And insofar as you do that, you are whole. You are sane. You are a saint in the making. But when those activities and desires and internal voices start to veer away from that one common ultimate end, then you're lacking holiness. So I would say it's knowing who you are made for that one unified ultimate goal of becoming a saint, praising, reverencing, and serving God. That's the way Ignatius puts it. Excellent. Well, thanks to you and to all our listeners, and uh, we'll turn it over to Michael now. Um, well, once more, uh, thank you, Father Sam, for helping to organize this series and for moderating today. And to you, Father David, for helping to, to pull out these threads of holiness and um, connecting them to us um, so many millennia you know, later from Augustine and Ambrose. Um, um, our gratitude today goes out to the Bolandist Society, co-presenters of the series, and America Media for sponsoring um, today's event and helping to ensure the success. Otherwise, Father David, once more, thank you. It's great to have you back at Lumen Christi. Um, and we look forward to uh, future opportunities for conversation and wishing everyone here a fantastic weekend. Thank you all. <laughs>